there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell, and I am so happy to be back here in the chair. It has been a minute since we last craftished. Uh, during our hiatus off, I worked with a team to fundraise, produce, debut, and promote my show, The Knit Show with Vicki Howell. So if you happen to be a knitter or crocheter, check that out on YouTube. I've also written another book, which you'll hear more about as we get closer to the publishing and I started a new business, which I'll tell you about later as well. So it's been busy, but I'm really, was really, really missing doing one of the things that I love best, which is having conversations with creative people and really finding out their origin stories and their journeys and, and really what makes them tick. So thrilled to be back here for season three. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, offering hands-free inspiration while you're making your next handmade thing. And I mean, really, who doesn't love a good book, right? But, you know, life gets in the way. We don't always have time to sort of snuggle in and buckle down and, and read a book traditionally. Or if you're like me, you fall asleep after reading, you know, three pages at the end of the night when you do have that time. We do, however, often as makers have time to listen. So right now, Penguin Random House Audio is offering a free download of Ivy and Inky the Butterfly. Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Bosford. She has woven together a magical tale around her gorgeous illustrations. So it's kind of both an audio and artistic experience. It's a fantastic adventurer for colors, or is it colorists? not sure what we're calling them these days Um, and also readers or in this case listeners of all ages so all you need to do is go to tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter to download it and check out all of their other great titles as well I've also teamed up with Penguin Random House Audio to bring you a new crafter segment at at the end of the show so stay tuned for that first though This week on the show, I chat with one of my favorite authors in my absolute favorite genre of fiction, psychological thrillers, Lisa Unger. She has a new book out, Under My Skin, which since this interview, as I do with all of Lisa's books, I devoured. You should definitely check it out. Uh, She also has a bunch of her older books um, recorded, the totally coincidentally on Penguin Random House Audio's site as well. So you can check that out on Try Audiobooks as well. That was completely serendipitous though. I tracked her down because like I said, I'm a huge fan. Um, and so I was you know, thrilled to talk to her about a bunch of different things. We talked about the creative process of writing, events in our lives that shape our paths, parenthood, and what I personally consider a trifecta of topical awesome, abnormal psychology, criminology and parapsychology so buckle up and let's dive right in lisa unger thank you so much for coming on to craftish thank you for having me i well first off on a personal note really the only time that i'm not working is in those like cherished few minutes before i fall asleep every night and i read a psychological thriller and so First of all, I wanted to say thank you for contributing to my, I guess, mental health. It's really my yeah. only downtime. <laughs> um, I'm so happy I can do that for you. I want to dive right in. Um, 
maybe with a little of your own personal history. Most of your books, well, almost all of your books, have three common themes in them. There's oh. crime or criminology, mental health, mental health as it pertains to fear and trauma. Yeah. And then there's always, not always, but often a metaphysical and paranormal aspect. And some of them there are, yeah, that's true. So I wanted to look back, not arguably two out of three of those themes don't necessarily align with your degree in uh, social research. So I wanted to go back a little bit further. I think we're, we're about the same age, give or take. Yeah. And I, I wanted to know if, I wanted to go back to as, as a child, what were you interested in? Are there any, do you have any sort of personal connections to any of these themes? And that could be anything from being a, a fan of, you know, dreamscape and fire starter movies to, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. having a cop as a cousin, you know, anything, just a little bit of history. Yeah. So, um, I, um, I don't remember a time in my life before I defined myself as a writer. So I have always thought of myself this way. And then of course, before that, you know, obviously I was a reader, all, all writers are readers first, usually you find. And, you know, I was kind of like this, just, you know, literary omnivore, right? Like I just wanted a big story with, you know, with, you know, like sort of big characters, prose, like anything. And I did not discriminate, you know, so it was like everything from, you know, classical literature to like, you know, Stephen King and V.C. Andrews to, you know, anything I could get my hands on basically. Right. Um, my family sort of, we, we traveled a lot. Um, I was born in the Northeast, but then, you know, we were, um, we moved around Europe quite a bit, the UK and the Netherlands, and then came back to the US. And so, you know, it was always kind of the new kid, right? It was always like, the, you know, the new person in school. And, you know, I had this kind of, you know, vivid imagination, you know, it was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a dork, you know, kind of just, you know, a, you know, more into books and, you know, sort of cerebral stuff than I was into, you know, school and people <laughs> and, um, you know, all that. So I feel like the first place I ever found a home, you know, or like a real place where I felt, you know, sort of comfortable was within the pages of, of a book. And then, you know, I think as a right, as most writers have a moment where you think, well, you know, if I can be so transported by the things that I'm reading, if I can, you know, be so connected to these characters and, you know, have these feelings, can I create the same type of dreamscapes? And so I think from that point, you know, that's when most of us start writing. So as for me, you know, I've always had this very deep curiosity about human nature, what makes us who we are you know, the brain, the psyche, you know, um, the supernatural, the paranormal. I've always had a tremendous um, curiosity about all that stuff. And I've also, you know, always had this kind of dark imagination. So I think when you look at the, like those two big aspects of my personality, you know, it's kind of easy to see why I evolved to be writing sort of psychological suspense, crime fiction. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not, it's not hard to, to see how that happened. Although I don't, you know, recall ever choosing to write or choosing to have a dark imagination. So it <laughs> kind of all came about. You pretty know, interestingly enough, though, I, I feel like in the eighties when we were kids, mm. 
paranormal activity in general was a common theme in a lot of our entertainment. And arguably it is now again. Yeah. But not as much in kids. I mean, I guess Firestarter is rated R, so it wasn't really a kid's movie, but it was it was Drew right. Barrymore as this, you know, right powerful child who could set fires. And I remember in this, I, I, you know, I was a little bit of a weird kid. I wanted to be a parapsychologist, but, right. I, but it wasn't that weird for us to sort of like lay in bed and think about, could I close that door with my mind? <laughs> because there was a right. lot of, you know, right. Ghostbusters was big. Like I mentioned, Dreamscape before, that sort of like working in parallel... It almost yeah. seemed like it was ingrained in that, in the zeitgeist of just that era. Um, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, because, you know, and I, I do think that, uh, you know, it was very much a part of our sort of vernacular, popular fiction, television, whatnot. Um, and I don't think it's ever gone away. You know, I mean, my fascination with the paranormal um, and Firestarter is a really good example of that is that, you know, like, for example, you know, in my books that feature the town, the hollows, which is a fictional town. And there's a, you know, there's a psych, there's a couple of psychics that are big parts of, of those stories. But, you know, I explore that, that area, um, only, you know, um, I shouldn't say only, but as, you know, like sort of a, you know, it's, sort of a Jungian exploration of what is paranormal, right? And using that word paranormal, I mean, it's kind of a buzzword. It's a genre, whatever. Like, that's not how I'm, that's not how I'm using it. I'm using paranormal as it actually is intended, meaning just beyond normal, right? So we are aware of about, um, like, maybe what 3% of our brains are doing, Right. Like that's how much we know about our brain. We know more about um, space than we do about our brains. <laughs> and so as I see it, you know, there are more questions than answers regarding what we're as human beings actually capable of. And um, so that's kind of how I explore it as opposed to like, you know, not that there's anything wrong with paranormal certainly there's plenty of great sort of <laughs> paranormal fiction you know vampires and witches and all that which is all great and again you know definitely something that was like part of our pop culture vernacular as you know children of the 80s right um but like the way i explore it is more like i'm at, i i think there are more questions than the answers and all of my books are about exploring the questions that i have about people and that's just one of them that's so fascinating because I don't know that I've ever considered vampire and witch stories as paranormal. I've always considered called. paranormal the other, the what the other, what, yeah. we, what we can do past what is right. Well, that's the, that's the actual definition of the word, but it becomes a genre. I mean, when you talk about paranormal fiction, you might be talking. You could be talking about vampires or witches or. You could be talking about time travel romance, or you could be talking about whatever. Like, so using that word paranormal becomes like sort of a, bu a buzzword in the industry for like, what is the book? Oh, it's a paranormal. For better or for worse for you? Um, oh, I don't think for either. I mean, I think, you know, like I say, you know, sort of all my life, I've just been this kind of literary omnivore. Like, I don't discriminate by genre. Like, I know a lot of people do, but I don't. I think there are great people writing in every 
you know, single area of fiction and you can find an amazing story, you know, beautiful prose, big characters and pretty much any place you're looking. Right. So I don't, I don't have, I don't have that, but I think that when people use a word to categorize something and then don't delve any deeper, they say, Oh, well, I don't like paranormal. Well, yeah. Okay. But do you even know what you're talking about? Like that, <laughs> that's the question I'm asking. So it's not like what, what I take issue with is when somebody just kind of like dismisses an entire sort of idea because they, because they've, you know, they've adhered to that, you know, concept of what they think it is, as opposed to saying, Oh, what do you, what do you mean when you say paranormal? Yeah. And, and I think that maybe what often isn't considered is the blurred lines between quote unquote paranormal mental illness yeah. and quantum right. physics. Right. Exactly. Yes. And really what that comes back to is to your point is that we just don't know. Like don't our little baby brains can't don't know anything. We, we can't grasp. Nothing. I have a this is just sort of a sidebar, but I have a teenage son who when he was nine was diagnosed with pediatric epilepsy and he's since um thankfully grown out of it but it was really during that period of time the epilepsy years that I really it really underlined the fact that we that nobody knows about the brain that right even these yeah. neurologists the I was talking right. to no they they could only yep. see so far with their machines they only knew what they you know what data was telling them um right which which goes back to how much we don't know Right. That, you which know, is, about what we're capable of. Right. Which is why I'm so fascinated by Carl Jung and his ideas and his exploration into the paranormal and his sort of thoughts about, you know, the the anomalous event. Right. Like that, you know, in the scientific method, the anomalous event is discarded. If a event cannot be replicated, then it doesn't fall into the scientific method. So if it's an anomaly it is discarded as, you know, not contributing to the research, right? But Carl Jung felt that the anomalous event was the one that deserved to be explored. And so that's why I continue to sort of, you know, die. I mean, and his, his work is, you know, obviously it's a lifetime of reading and, you know, thinking and, you know, you can only scratch the surface. At least I can only scratch the surface of many of his thoughts and ideas because they're so layered and, and deep. And he had, you know, such a connection to the idea of the paranormal, which is, you know, what led him to sort of separate from Freud, you know, um, later in his career. And, you know, try to, you know, want to isolate himself so that he could, you know, sort of explore those ideas. But, I mean, that's where, you know, those are the things that, you know, sort of obsess me and continue to feed my fiction. You know, what's interesting is that actually sort of is semi-linear to some of the advancement in criminology since there. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar. Oh, of course you are. You're a crime writer. Um, with the Ted Kaczynski story. Yes. But... God, yeah, but ling linguistics had never, up to that point, been right. brought into discovery, and because of this one, because of this anomaly, now right. we have a completely different way of approaching crime investigation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that, and that's kind of an interesting thing too. Is just that you know, I think what's what's great about sort of how things are evolving is the intersection of disciplines that previously, you know, did not intersect, you know, so at one point, you know, you couldn't intersect, 
neurology, you know, neurology and psychology. You know, oh my, I'm studying the brain. You're studying the psyche. Oh, psychology is a pseudoscience. Yeah. Oh, neurology is just kind of, you know, it's just about the physical brain. It's like, really? I mean, <laughs> you don't see that it's all, you know, connected. But that's so now, again, our brains right. not being able to function at the bigger, with the bigger picture. With the bigger picture. So, you know, and then also for that element, the neurology, psychology, to start to intersect with criminal investigation, you know, everything is advanced by these intersections. Everything is everything. You learn something about everything by, you know, by intersecting them. And the, you know, the Ted Kaczynski case, of course, is, you know, a perfect example of that, where all of a sudden there's this, you know, forensic linguistics, which previously you know, didn't exist, but I mean, how, you know, how much of a fingerprint is our, is how we use language? I mean, how much does it tell us about ourselves and each other? I mean, it's, it's huge. And just as a side note for listeners who may not be familiar, uh, what we're talking about is how um, the detective at the time, and maybe you know the name, I can't remember it off the top of my head, finally convinced his superiors to right. um, have printed in a major newspaper this manifesto by Ted Kaczynski, right. and the thought behind it was that because there were some in interesting um, writing turns patterns, phrase, yeah. turns of yeah. phrase, that's a better way of saying it, the hope was that somebody would recognize it, and to make a very long story short, it worked, and it changed, right. it changed the field permanently. Right. And as a writer, I mean, it makes perfect sense because, you know, you're constantly, I mean, you know, the writer is, the, is first and foremost an observer, you know, so you're constantly taking in information, details, and, you know, um, you know, the way people speak, the words they use, you know, their inflection, their, um, you know, the way they you know, combine phrases, you know, all of that. I mean, it's something as a writer that you're always listening for and always sort of absorbing because, you know, you're going to draw on that when you're, you know, connecting with character and writing dialogue, because, you know, so much about a character is revealed in, in what, what they, you know, what he says or what she says. So, I mean, for a writer, that makes, it's like, of course you would do this, because of course, whoever is in his inner circle is going to recognize that particular style of rant and the words that he uses, because they'll be particular to him. Do you have any and you don't have to answer this, but uh, do you have any personal connection to trauma-induced mental health issues? It's a, it's a topic that's covered in many of your books. Yeah, I, I, I actually, you know, I have, I mean, I have some um, connection to trauma, certainly not, you know, anything that was related to me um, specifically, but I... When I was a when I was a girl, when I was fifteen years old, a, a girl I knew, a girl in my school, was abducted and murdered, and it was a a horrific event, uh, you know, a terrible, terrible tragedy, and you know, something that I think changed, as it did a lot of the people, a lot of the young people that lived in that town, it changed me. It changed the way I saw the world. You know, before that, I thought it was one thing. After that, I thought it was, I, you know, I realized it was another. 
And um, I, I feel like, you know, in many ways that kind of formed me, like in terms of trying to understand how something like that um, could happen. And, um, to, you know, so it, you know, it, it definitely, it definitely changed how I thought about things. Has she made an appearance in any form in any of your books? Um, well, so, you know, over the years, you know, as a writer, of course, you know, we wind up metabolizing your life and sure. the things that happen to you on the page. And, uh, over the years, you know, certain, um, aspects of it try to find its way out and nothing ever resolves itself this is prior to to actually publishing nothing ever resolved itself um into anything larger you know they're like there's some partials and then when i started writing uh fragile which is the first book that features the my fictional town the hollows when i first started writing um that book, you know, because of the way I write, you know, usually there's a germ and then there's some research and then there are voices and I start following these voices through the narrative, right? So I don't have an outline. I don't know what's going to happen day to day. I don't know who's going to show up or what they're going to do. I definitely know how, don't know how it's going to end. Um, and beca- I, because of the way I write, I was like about 25% into that book before I realized, oh, this is it. This is the, this is how it comes forward. And it was almost like I needed to have written eight novels. I needed to be older. I needed to be a wife and a mother before I was in a position to address what was my part to bring forward? I ne- it was. This is not just to be clear. Not a retelling of what happened um, by any means. And I, I, I never wanted to do a book like that. I never wanted to um, exploit, you know, p- the pain that people endured. You know, obviously, her family, you know, has suffered more than um, anyone needs to suffer in this lifetime. So certainly nothing I do is ever going to contribute to that, but it w- there was a piece for me that belonged to me that I needed to put onto the page. And, you know, it's in that, bu- it's in that book. So that's the book where I sort of, some of it came forward. How old was your own daughter at the time when you wrote that book? Mm, let's see. She must've been about five or six. Yeah. Is she, has she hit that 15 age yet? Oh, uh, no, she's 12. She's 12. Yeah. Interesting. At what point, so in that book, um, you bring in a character, Jones Cooper, who mm. is the law enforcement character. And in your books, the law enforcement characters seem to be sort of the frame around the total artwork. Mm-hmm. They they're t- they tend to just sort of be the thing that holds everything together, but not necessarily the focal point. Right. We speak a little bit. We've we've spoken a bit about sort of the the mental health aspect and the metaphysical aspect. We let's talk a little bit about the criminology aspect of your of your novels now. Yeah. What? Uh, go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. What place? 
in your books, what role do your law enforcement characters play? That's a good question. I mean, I don't really ever think of them as law enforcement characters is the thing, right? Like I never, they're just, they're just people, right? So they may have, that might be their particular role, like Jones Cooper, for example, you know, that's just what he does, but he, so when he, just using him as an example, when he turned up in Fragile, you know, I didn't think very much of him. I just thought he was the husband, you know, like he Mm -hmm. kind of showed up and I thought, well, he's interesting because he, um, you know, he's just like the guy you call and, you know, he's like that kind of very practical, solid, you know, guy on your street who you might call to say, Oh, I think I left the stove on or, you know, he's like, you know, the cop, the, you know, he's like sort of some, somebody that people look to, to be the hero. Um, and yet, you know, he's deeply, he's deeply flawed, um, in ways that, you know, only he, only he knows. And so that, that's what interested me about him. The fact that he was a, you know, that he was a cop, a police officer, and that, you know, he would be part of, you know, the investigation was like almost secondary. So the books are not, you know, by any means, you know, procedural, though I do know quite a bit about, um, you know, law enforcement and, and, and criminality. It's not, you know, those are not that the books are not those kind of books. Um, everybody is a person first and then their role second. So it's never like, okay, here's the investigation. We're following the investigation of the crime and we're, you know, drawing in those police procedural details, even though they're there, they're, you know, they're secondary. It's not the driving force of the narrative. The driving force of the narrative for every book is, you know, the the character. They're very character driven. All plot for me flows from character. Since you mentioned procedural, will you speak a little bit to the intersection of creativity of being a fiction writer and of sort of logistics and frame that are really crucial to writing when it comes to you know, yeah. you, you have to sometimes you're talking about medical terms you're often talking about psychological terms and then of course the criminology Right. Well, I mean, you can never know too much, right? That's for sure. You know, um, so research is extremely important if you want to, if you want to write from a a place of like primary knowledge, right? Obviously, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a law enforcement person. I'm not, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor. So I, I don't have that education and you know and I think plenty of people from those fields you know come to fiction because they want to you know um, they feel that with that knowledge they can create a, a framework of verisimilitude in in which they can insert their their story or their plot and certainly that works you know very well for many people um, I'm I'm not that kind of person I'm a writer first and you know I'm drawing from you know my life and my experiences my education you know my ongoing research and that's sort of how I'm bringing authenticity to the stories that I tell. So even though, you know, you can never do too much research, you can never know too much, you certainly can put too much research into your book. Mm. (laughs) Whenever you're, 
finding yourself doing some kind of an information dump because you want to prove how much you know about your subject matter, you can be pretty much assured that you've brought your narrative to a grinding halt, right? So you um, definitely you know, want to have as much knowledge as you can. You want to have as many people that you can talk to as you can, as many resources as you can to confirm your, um, your accuracy where you need to be accurate. Um, but you know, it's definitely a balancing act because nobody, you know, you want to know as much as you need to know to be correct, to not take people out of that vivid and continuous dream with some type of error or, um, you know, lack of knowledge. Um, but you know, the heart and soul of every story is character, and that's where you need to be always. And your, your character should, you know, I think, flow from your knowledge and research. Do you rely on an editor to help you find that balance? Or in some ways, do the characters themselves speak to you about it? I mean, it's really about being, it's really about dwelling with character. I mean, certainly your editor plays a huge role in making sure you've accomplished what you set out to accomplish. I mean, if you, the editorial relationship is incredibly, is incredibly important, but, um, you know, for me, it's all, it's all about character. I mean, I'm never, you know, I'm never looking to, to information dump. I'm only looking to support the, the lives of my characters with my knowledge. Will you talk a little bit about your fictional town, The Hollows, and sort of the impetus of its development in your stories? Um, yeah, so The Hollows was another thing that turned up that I didn't think very much of initially. <laughs> I just thought it was like sort of any town or more like... But nobody wa- nobody's interested in any town. No, nobody wants, to, <laughs> nobody wants to live in this town. And by any town, I mean... And, and by any town, I mean right. the place where nothing bad ever happens, which is, of course, nowhere, because bad things happen everywhere. So that was kind of what the Hollows was to me. It was like the town where nothing bad ever happens, because you always hear that, you know, like, oh, nothing like this has ever happened here before. <laughs> you know, like that's, right. a, that's a well-worn phrase that you hear after the worst possible thing has happened. And I, you know, I'm always interested in why people think that they live in a place where nothing bad ever happens. And so my my brother is like, oh, this town is totally Long Valley, which is a, the place in New Jersey where we, uh, you know, he lived there longer than I did because he was younger when we moved back to the States, but where I went to like middle school and high school and before moving to New York City. And, you know, it was like just this kind of semi-rural, semi-suburban place. And, you know, a- as a kid, I absolutely hated it. I absolutely hated it. I could not <laughs> wait to get out. Like, to move to New York, right? Um, and then, you know, it's sort of, you know, it, and it's, of course, it's not Long Valley at all. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with the place where we grew up. And yet, somehow, it kind of also is that place. So it's like, you know, how you're, in, when you're dreaming, you're in your, like, sort of, you're aware of yourself, like, in your childhood home. But, like, the childhood home in your dream has no resemblance whatsoever to the actual place where you grew up. So it's kind of like that, it occupies that type of space in my imagination. Um, So, and then, you know, so at the beginning of Fragile, yeah, I was like, okay, this is like any town or the town where nothing bad ever happens. And then it starts to evolve, right? It starts to become a character in and of itself and a character that, you know, like my other characters evolves over a period of 
books. I mean, the Hollis books are not, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it a series, but they are chain linked by person and place. And so then I started to have a sense of the hollows as being something else, you know, being something with an agenda. It's not necessarily a malicious agenda, but it's definitely got something that it wants. It encourages past paths to cross. It doesn't like secrets. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it's definitely running some kind of an agenda. And so that's how I started to get a sense of the hollows and how it, you know, has evolved over, over a number of books. And also the other feature of the hollows is that it's something different to everyone, mm -hmm. you know, like for, to, to, it's different to Jones Cooper than it is to Eloise Montgomery, Montgomery. Mm -hmm. than it is to Ian Payne than it is to you know somebody who might just be passing through as a tourist you know 36 hours in the hollows you know like leaf peeping and whatnot you know like um you know like it's completely different to everybody who who goes there depending on what they what they bring what they bring to it what they're willing to see what they're willing to accept about it and so it, you know, it continues to evolve and to change and it winds up trying to get into every single book, even if the book is not about it. Right. Like it wants to, it keeps trying to get into everything. Right. It's a care. It's become a character. I, yeah. I, since you brought up Eloise Montgomery, I probably my favorite of your books is Ink and Bone mm -hmm. and where of which she was a, a, a central character and where I am in your current book, which I want to talk about in a second, um, Under My Skin, there was just a reference to her uh, as yeah. well. And I would, yeah, love, I, I would love to hear about her development. So just so our, our listeners know, this is an older woman um, in Ink and Bone. She's the grandmother of, of the central character, but she is sort of the town psychic, but in the most wise of ways she's not the stereotypical kooky right you know fortune teller right yeah Eloise turned up at the end of fragile and i just thought oh wow you know a psychic right like when she turned up and i was really disappointed that she didn't have a she has a pivotal role but not a bigger role to play at the end of fragile i was like oh man you know because i thought well even if she's a fraud that's still interesting you know right. like the person who pretends to be psychic or who thinks they're psychic and they aren't and so you know at the end of fragile i was like super worried about jones me and i didn't know what could be his next phase in life, you know, and I had a lot of just questions about Eloise. And so obviously that, you know, it kind of flowed into the next book and they had their, their own book. And so she, she developed for me, I mean, in an extremely weird way. Um, I, you know, she sort of like, I mean, a long time ago, I, you know, stopped thinking about characters as people that I create and just sort of started thinking about them as people that I meet, because even though that's not the truth of the, of, of the, of, that's not the actuality of it. That's the experience, that's the experience that I, that I have. And, 
you know, so she sort of started to reveal her, you know, she started to reveal herself in layers in terms of how she came to her powers, what, you know, what her experience is. Like, you know, she's a very, you know, she's like you say, she's, she's a very grounded person. I mean, she's She's not. Yeah, she's like, she exactly. She's very much like the, like sort of the, the cornerstone and she's not like, you know, she dwells in that place where, you know, she has this ability and yet, you know, she isn't defined, she isn't defined by it in a way that she's created it as her identity. She's sort of reluctant to it in the same way that Finley is reluctant to it later. It's thrust upon her. Um, it's thrust upon her in the most horrific of, of ways and she accepts it as you know um, something that she's been called upon to do and her journey with it is intense you know and towards the end you know it's 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 ta- it's taking it's taking her towards you know as we move towards ink and bone it's she's given too much of herself to it she's given away too much and so she's, um, you know, she's a, she, so when I, so obviously she evolved over a period of books, she pops into certain places when, when she's needed. And then she has a novella that's all about her. So there's a novella called the whispering hollows, um, which is actually those three short stories that are really a novella. Or a novella that's really three short stories, <laughs> depending on how, depending on how you look at it, and um, that so I, that was a, those three stories. Um, they uh, span a period of thirty years, and they're intended to weave in between the other books. So she developed for me in you know in a way that is you know, pretty, pretty unusual. And so, I mean, I've just been basically fine finding her, um, in pieces over, you know, the last several years. Is there anyone in your life that she resembles or has characteristics of? I think that, I mean, I think the closest thing I, the closest thing that I could come to for germ for Eloise Montgomery is, um, the psychic John Edwards. Really? Familiar with him. So in my my other life in, in publishing, I worked for Penguin, for Penguin Putnam. At the time it was Penguin Putnam. And we published, um, his books. And... I had an opportunity to meet, I had an opportunity to meet him. Um, I didn't work with him, you know, as a publicist, my, you know, my boss worked with him and, uh, but I got to meet him a couple of times and I wasn't read by him, but people in the office were read by him. And, you know, he was obviously just very obviously tapped into something beyond, you know, I mean, it's just clear. Yeah. And, um, and, and yet, you know, He's like just this guy from Long Island. You know, he had a deli. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. And uh, he was like this, just this normal guy that you hung out with. And he was very just, you know, he had this very centered knowing energy. And he was just very pleasant to be with. And it was just, 
to me, this, you know, this, it was just this like tremendous, um, it had this tremendous impact where I thought, wow, you know, and that's where I started to be really interested in the idea of the normal and the paranormal dwelling side by side, which is a very key element of Eloise's life. This is what I love about these, for this podcast, I interview creative types from all walks of life. And what I love is again and again, I hear about how people's pathways, even if, you know, one portion of their life is completely unrelated to the next, how they're, how they intertwine in some way. I mean, if you had not, right, if you had not worked for a publisher that worked, you know, with John Edwards, would would you be in the genre? You'd most certainly be a writer. You've always been a writer. Right. But would your books have that element? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the magic of it, right? I mean, that's the, you know, if you're living authentically and writing authentically, you know, then, of course, you know, your whole life is a, you know, is a, um, is fodder for what comes next. And these little seeds, you know, these germs um, you know, they, they plant, they plant and, um, you don't know when they're going to evolve on the page. Um, so yeah, I mean that, I mean, and we're talking about, I don't even know, I mean, 10 years, 15 years before, you know, between Mm -hmm. having worked with him and then had that, you know, have Eloise sort of become part of my work. Right. But there was, 25 years between mm. give or take um what happened as a in your childhood yeah, and, exactly and for her right. to surface so exactly right yeah they I mean, germinate is it when you're ready when it's ready you know it evolves and the, i mean that's part of the that's part of the magic of it you know that's part of the you know the union of the conscious and the subconscious <sighs> I've had in my Amazon cart for about two years, and I don't remember which book of yours, and I don't remember where. It might have been in just your author's notes. I've had The Inner World of Trauma, Archetypal Defenses of Personal <laughs> because okay. I'm... an epic, epic work. It is. It is. Because that's like such my jam. And I've never just clicked on it because I was like, I don't know. Am I really going to read this textbook? And it's $45. Do I really? But it, I can't bring to myself to take it away. You need to get it. I'm giving you permission okay, to buy totally it and read it. Yeah. But, because but it's, I, I mean, it is, it, I mean, it really changed the way I thought about mental illness, trauma, and the psyche. Well, and that's what I want to talk about is, is how much, I mean, this is, that is a, a monster of a book. How much time, how much of your process really does involve that intense of well, I mean, it's a, a lifetime of re- it's a lifetime of reading. So I it's mean. not necessarily specifically for, no, okay, no. there's this rarely, character. Rarely okay. even. You know, like every once in a while, I'll run into the stone wall of my own ignorance and have to figure something out. But mainly, I'm, I mean, that's like the wellspring. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's like, you know, my knowledge, my experience, my education, my reading, you know, these are the things that are informing the fiction. It's not, oh, I have this idea for a plot and a character. Let me go figure out how to make that work. 
that is not the way it works for me. So, yeah, I mean, that book, I mean, there's so many, I mean, I'm just constantly re I mean, constantly reading that type of thing, but that, that book is really special. I mean, it's, it's brilliantly written. That's, that's the first thing about it. And the second thing about it is that he just has such a unique perspective on, on certain, on certain things. And, you know, there's a ton of, you know, very vivid, you know, case studies. Um, but I have to say, like, you know, if I were going to pull away one thing from that book that kind of changed the way I thought about things and actually even informed, you know, the book that I just completed that I'll, that'll publish next year or something that kind of stuck around for a long time was how he said something in that book about the split psyche Mm-hmm. that just stayed with me because he said that um that people always think of mental illness as like a horror show you know as this awful thing that happens to people and that in fact when the psyche splits in extreme trauma it has done so in order to survive Mm -hmm. that if it hadn't done that, that it would, that if it hadn't broken itself into pieces, that it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have survived the trauma. And that really blew my mind, you know, because it's so obviously true. Yeah. And I mean, that's the whole, when we grew up, um, Sybil came out. Yeah. Which, sure. by the way, I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard any of the recent interviews. Um, I haven't. Uh, with, um, oh my gosh, Gidget, why am I losing her name? Um, the woman that's p- that played Sybil. Oh. Great actress. It'll come back oh. to me. Um, Was it Sa- Sally? Sally Fields. Thank Sally you. Fields. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. I'm so sorry, yeah. Sally. You're amazing. So she <laughs> she's revealed that she's had that she had a lot of. Um, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse as a child, and I am dying to talk. To, I mean, I just I wonder what it was like to play a character like Sybil with multiple personalities. Right. And she also had to play characters like Gidget, who were bright and right. shiny. But then also, when we were probably in the '90s, I don't know if you remember Trudy Chase, Mm-mm. who had I think she had something like 21 personalities, um, and I was just fascinated by that concept. By yeah. Yeah. Again, going back to where we started, how we just have no idea what our brains are capable of. Right. I mean, exactly. It's a, exactly full circle to to where we started. I mean, because that, you know, we have no idea what's going on in there. I mean, none. And, you know, all the different ways that, you know, our psyche processes information, even how we, you know, just compartmentalize our lives, our days, you know, even from the creative perspective, it's like the person who sits down to write a novel is not necessarily the same person that gets up to make a sandwich or, you know, mm. pick up my daughter from school. That's not the same person. You know, so it's, you know, I guess that question of, you know, how the psyche splits, you know, what's normal, what's not normal, you know, how and many who's defining do you what normal, right, and who's defining is, right. it, exactly, and how many people do you have inside you, and who do you call upon in times of extreme stress, or, you know, who, who are you 
in times of extreme joy or peace, you know, are those all, are you the same person every day? You know, it's just a, you know, it's just a question, you know. And the part of you that either consciously or subconsciously works to make it appear that you are that same person every day, is that another? Is that, again, another, is that like right. the dominatrix? Like, no, no, right. you know, put on this face for everyone. Right, right. Yeah. I could go down this rabbit hole with you for hours, sure. but we're, <laughs> but we should actually talk about your, your latest book. That's right. Um, <laughs> Under my skin, will you will you just talk a little bit about the lead character Poppy, and yeah. without spoiling anything, what her story is? Yeah, so Poppy is a young widow. She's a she's a photographer, and she's about a year past the unsolved murder of her husband, Jack. And, um, she's in a bad, she's in a bad place. She's after his death, she suffered a a break, a psychotic break. And, um, she's sleep deprived and she's messing with the dosage on her prescribed sleep medication. Additionally, she's taking mystery pills from her friend Layla who says, don't worry about it. This will take the edge off. You know, everybody's medicating all the time just to get through the day. And, um, so she's in a pretty, pretty bad place. And, um, she starts to, um, when her nightmares start to sort of kick up a notch, you know, due to her extreme trauma and her, you know, lack of sleep, um, they start sort of, for lack of a better way to put it, leaking into her waking life. And her sort of very fragile grip on reality starts to slip until the point where she can no longer tell the difference between her reality, her dreams, and what might be her memories. <coughs> There's a point in the book where, well, it's many points in the book, but where you talk a little bit about that, that another place. The hypnagogia. Yes. Yeah. And you talk about the hypnagogic state and this is just a side note. Cause I do want to talk about that. Are you watching haunted Hill house on Netflix? No, oh no, I haven't started. Is it Girl, amazing? Oh my God. Together. I cannot wait. Yeah. But it, there's, it's, it's, it's different, but they also bring up. There's there's a they bring up sleep paralysis, and it's a it's a whole through line of this whole story. Okay. And within the same two days, I'm reading your novel, bringing it up, and this is playing out before my eyes. And I was like, "What is the universe telling me? Like, what do I yeah. need to know?" Like, <laughs> it's amazing. But will you will you? Because I think that um, often, especially in our society, I feel like sleep isn't taken all that seriously. Oh, yeah, I know. And especially as Americans. That's another thing. You thinking that you need, you know, saying that you need rest is almost seen as a weakness in our country. That's so true. (laughs) And you play with with how serious a lack of sleep and especially trauma-induced lack of sleep is. Will you speak a little bit? Well, first, tell our listeners what um, being in a hypnagogic state is and then um, speak a little to sort of the 
the breadth of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, so I started, so did we, did we talk about the Carl Jung um, quote that was like sort of the seed for this book? We didn't so talk about the quote. No, it's, it's, so it was between the dreams of day and night, there is not so great a difference. And this quote or thought or whatever just kind of bounced around my head for a long time, maybe years. Like, what does he mean by that? You know, the dreams of day and night. And so it started me like, you know, sort of I've been interested in the past, but it started me sort of in earnest, like sort of thinking about sleep and and dreams. And I started, you know, doing a little research, digging in, like trying to understand a little bit more about, um, you know, sleep, which again, something we know very, very little about, which is amazing. But we do know that we spend on average, we spend an average of 229,000 hours of our lives asleep. We spend a third of our lives sleeping. Mm -hmm. And that's more time than we spend doing anything else, you know, working, eating, driving, you know, and yet, you know, we're convinced that whatever's happening in the real world is more real than whatever is happening in this dream world. Right. So, I was, you know, fascinated by this and it kind of led me to discover the idea of hypnagogia, which is a liminal state, which is another, you know, sort of liminal states or sort of like the spaces in between things, which are always very fascinating for me, like how it's one thing and then it's another thing. So, like, this is the doorway between um, your waking life and your dreaming life. And you may not have heard the word before, but everybody's experienced it. It's that moment where you're just nodding off to sleep and you experience these very vivid dreams of falling or something mm-hmm. leaps out at you from the dark and you wake, you wake up suddenly. So like that, I found that sort of super fascinating. Um, this idea that, you know, there, you know, like that, that just kind of portal right, between these two spaces, like that there's, you know, there's the one thing and the other thing and then the space in between, you know, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that and about how um, the brain does this, you know, it like plays like all these kind of little tricks, like if, when it's sleep de- deprived, it takes my, it takes these little micro sleeps mm-hmm. where parts of it just kind mm-hmm. of power down. And, um, the idea that you can just not get enough sleep and it's like, Oh, I'm so sleep deprived. And I, you know, like you say, like the idea that you need to rest, you know, is like almost like a weakness. Like you couldn't say, Oh, I can't be there. I have to, I have to rest. People would be like, what are you 80? Right. You know? And it's like, it's absolutely critical. Like it's food, air, water, sleep. I mean, it's that critical. It's de- if you don't sleep, it's deadly. And people don't seem to get that. Like they don't, you know, they seem to take this in, this one this chunk, this one third of your life utterly and completely for for granted. And um, so that's the place that that I was in, you know, sort of the, this liminal state. And then, you know, there was a couple of other things that sort of fed into it. Obviously, tr- you know, trauma. It's another place that, you know, once you've, you know, once you've become sleep deprived, your perception is altered. Once you've been exposed to extreme trauma and you, you know, sort of have PTSD or untreated PTSD, again, you know, it's another place where your perception is, is altered. Addiction, 
alters our perception of reality. Um, and so I was very interested in exploring, um, you know, sort of the impact that these things, these sort of demons have on how, on, on how we perceive the world. I want to end with just a, a little bit of a sidebar on being a woman in a genre that is well, has historically been dominated by men. Mm. Do you do you feel now, although that's certainly changing, do you feel like you have a great support amongst fellow authors? I, I have this like vision of you. I mean, I know that you you do speak with Karen Slaughter. I've seen her on your on your Facebook page, but of you and like Paula Hawkins and you know like Gillian Flynn and you know Lisa Gardner, like all sort of having these brainstorming sessions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You say that. I mean, I, I feel, I have felt very, um, throughout my career, very supported and bolstered by, you know, writers, male and female, you know, I feel like, especially within the sort of mystery thriller community, which I don't think actually exists in other writing communities because, you know, um, I've heard that much from other people, but there's like a tremendous, um, you know, I've always received a tremendous amount of support from people who, um, you know, who I greatly admire as writers and as people, male and, and female, I do have, you know, several very powerful, you know, um, amazing female writer pals, you know, and, you know, Karen Slaughter, obviously Lisa Gardner, Tess Gerritsen, Alifair Burke, you know, these people are, you know, usually supportive and they're also friends. And we do spend a lot of time, you know, obviously over the year, you know, when you've been doing something for so long and you see each other all over the place over the years, you know, those relationships, they become friendships, like in any, any career. And, um, you know, so I've been super grateful to, you know, to a lot of people, but, you know, I don't, I don't think, and even though we get together and we talk about things, you know, just, you know, there's a, a way that like when you get together with another writer that you just kind of dive into all different kinds of topics and, you know, you can just kind of talk and talk and talk forever. It's not like, it, there's not as much brainstorming about create creativity, you know, like creatively, like, oh, what are you working on? What am I working on? Like, there's not as much about that. It's just about everything else, everything that feeds our fiction, everything, you know, everything about the business. So there are these like sort of tremendously dynamic relationships that, you know, we all really do try to bolster each other and support each other and, and stay connected and be connected. Um, you know, we're, I feel very grateful for the people who have, who have done that, but it's definitely been, you know, equal part male, female, you know, um, help. I've never felt, you know, even though I know it is a male dominated industry and it certainly, you know, I mean, it's a male dominated world. I mean, who are we kidding? But, you know, I've always felt very, very blessed by my, by my support system within the community. How do you, with your own daughter, encourage, nurture, infuse creativity in her life when she, 
oh, yeah. sees you, which I mean, and, and I might be projecting myself on onto this, but um, she sees a mom who's making a living creative, but often that can also be associated with being with stress because mm-hmm. of deadlines. Sure. So how do you get past if that is a barrier um, to nurture the sort of benefits of having a career that's solely based on your own creation? Well, you know, I mean, I think, so uh, my daughter has, you know, she's been a part of my um, working life in a way that maybe a lot of kids are not part of their parents' working life because she's always come with me everywhere I go. She's gone on almost every book tour I've been on. Um, she, since she was four, since she was four months old. And, um, so she's grown up at conferences and in bookstores and she's seen, you know, she's seen all of the sort of, you know, highs and lows of the creative professional, the writing life, you know, so I, you know, she's had a front row, had a front row seat to that. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, I, I definitely have, try to, as far as the day to day, I very much work around her schedule and always have done since she was a baby. So I think for a long time, she didn't even realize I had a job. Right. (laughs) She was just like, and then late when she was old enough to kind of start verbalizing stuff, she's like, I want to be a mommy writer when I grow up like you. Mm. And I was like, that's "That's amazing. That's exactly what I am. I'm a mommy and I'm a writer. And so, you know, I really tried to, you know, in, you know, create that balance of taking her, you know, now that she's older, it's more important for her to be in her schedule than it is for her to be, you know, on the road with me. But, you know, I still try to, to create a balance for her so that she's not left. And so there's not that many nights when, you know, in a row where I have, where I'm away doing stuff and the day to day, you know, when she comes home, you know, I'm just her mom. That's it. Because, there's no other way to do it because the biggest stresses you'll ever find in your life are the moments where you're trying to intersect two things that don't work together. Like you cannot answer your email and make a snack for your child. You cannot work on your novel while your kid is sick. Like, (laughs) like you have to figure out where those lines are and draw them hard. And, you know, if that means you don't write until, you know, she's asleep for the night, or if that means that, you know, you, whatever, you don't get to do the thing um, that you thought you were going to do today. Like, that's just how over the years I've come to realize that, you know, there have to be these sort of hard demarcation lines between things. And, you know, and, and that's a discipline. You know, that's a discipline. But, you know, so whatever we have done, um, she is a wildly free-thinking, ultra-fearless, creative spirit. You know, she's an animator. She's an artist. She's a writer. She's, you know, um, she's a, you know, a, a naturalist. She's got a all her own stuff going on and so you know because you know there's no way to you know if you want to be true there's no way to shield your child from your stress I mean everybody has stress you know everybody has work work related stress right so you don't want to you don't want to pretend you know you're never going to pretend that there's not stress and that you know that you and, and and in showing 
your child that there's stress in the creative writing life, but also, you know, revealing to the child that there are ways to manage it and that there are tremendous blessings to living your life this way, then you're going to just give her the full, you know, the full picture. And as it, you know, as it should, as it should be. Right. Um, but those lines for me, the, the places where I've always been the most stressed is when I've been trying to, you know, do two things at once. And so it was kind of a learning curve for me to figure out like, oh, well, you know what? No, you can't do both. You cannot multitask. Not, not these two huge things. Your creative life and your life as a parent are gigantic high level goals. If you want to be the best mom be and the best writer that you can be, then those are, you know, super ginormous, um, totally consuming creative enterprises and they do not mingle. So you have to, you have to compartmentalize. Lisa Unger, mommy writer. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for a fantastic interview. For more information on Lisa Unger, you can check out her website for which you can find a link to along with information on her books, including her latest under my skin at vickihowell.com slash craftish. All right, now it is time for the aforementioned new segment, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. And this is just a a little number where I just thought I would share what I'm listening to, what I'm watching while I'm making. And so it can be, you know, literally crafting with needles or pens or brushes in hand, or it can be just, you know, figuratively. A lot of times I'm listening or watching to this stuff while I'm you know, crafting my business, really just, these are just the things that are entertaining me right now. So I'm kind of in between TV shows right now. I have watched a couple that I really loved lately, both on Netflix. The first is Maniac, um, and that is starring Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. It's very quirky. It's sort of like a delightful little trip. Um, It deals a little bit with mental illness, a lot with other dimensions, and it has sort of a Wes Anderson-y feel to it. So if if you like a little bit odd and out there, but smartly written and directed and and shot, then uh, you should check out Maniac. I also, uh, my husband and I just watched Haunting um, Hill House on Netflix. If you love creepy, spooky, uh, this is this is a great watch. I'm also in the middle of watching American Horror Story Apocalypse. I, I have to say I'm kind of neutral about this one. However, if you find B.D. Wong as a warlock accompanying Stevie Nicks on piano while she serenades a coven of witches to be kind of your own, I don't know, special cup of perfection, then I'm going to recommend that you give this series a try. All right, so when I'm not watching something, and as I said, I'm in the middle of a middle of kind of a show dry spell because I keep devouring these, uh, I'm often listening to music. What I've been listening to most recently is Courtney Barnett's latest release, Tell Me How You Really Feel. So check that out if you are so inclined. And then, of course, 
and get my audiobook on. So I tend to get a little obsessed with different podcasts and I listen to a lot of political stuff and really lately, and as you've seen from my recommendations for shows, there's been a lot of darker stuff happening. So I really wanted something light to listen to. And let me tell you what the spoonful of sugar that I am listening to right now is, is a book called The Greatest Love Story Ever Told by the real life couple Megan Mullally, who is probably most well known from, um, from Will and Grace, and then her husband, Nick Offerman from Parks and Recreation, but also from every crafter's new favorite show, NBC's Making It, which he co-hosts with Amy Poehler. So this is the story of their almost 20-year-old relationship, which in and of itself is is an accomplishment in the entertainment industry, but it's also, it's everything that you'd imagine it to be because they are narrating, narrating it themselves and just the way that they speak to each other and banter is just really delightful. They found a way to talk about their relationship, but also have interwoven their own stories about their combined, you know, four decades or so in the entertainment industry. And often they find these, you know, sort of strange little crossroads where and connections where their lives had touched before they had actually known each other. It's just very cool. So I'm about halfway through now. If you're so, if you love, you know, a delight and or are a fan of either Nick Offerman or Megan Mullally, you should check out The Greatest Love Story Ever Told. And you can also find that um, at tryaudiobooks.com as well. So give it a try. Alrighty, well that does it for us. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend or post a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, especially since I took a wee bit of a hiatus. I definitely need to get the word out again, so I really appreciate it. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me, Vicki Howell, and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. Oh, and one more thing. So I mentioned earlier that I had started a new business. It's a long story how I got into it, but I'm loving it. Um, If you happen to know any fiber lovers, let them know about my newish subscription box business, Yarnier, or Yarnier, however you want to say it. Um, And every box or with every subscription included are monthly bite-sized portions of artisanal, hand-dyed, or indie mainstay yarns, two exclusive patterns, which I have designed. Um, They're the exact same type of project, but one's for knitters and one's for crocheters, and they were designed specifically for the yardage and the yarn that you get. And then you get at least two specialty items as well that will make your whole stitching heart swoon. And what I love... I'm not going to say the most because I, I love I love the yarn, but almost as much is the community that surrounds it. So you also get access to our private Facebook group, and that includes tutorials. I do video tutorials. I'm, I'm kind of really interacting with my yarniers almost every day, so it's, it's really kind of a lovely experience. Uh, we do stitch-alongs together, and then I often have exclusive interviews for the group with guests that are in some way connected with that month's box. So, sales for the November box are open on November 13th at noon. They have 
Every month so far sold out, so make sure you jump right on it. And you can also just go to yarnyay.com. That's Y-A-R-N-Y-A-Y.com right now and just add your email to the list and you'll be notified as soon as we as we go live. And if this feels like too many websites for you to uh, to memorize, just also you can just go to vickihowell.com slash craftish and everything that I have mentioned today will be cataloged for you right there. Alrighty, so make sure to check out your feed again next Thursday. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe to the Craftish Podcast. Next week, we will be back here with guest Anda Corey. She is the author of the latest Spoonflower book. I'm kind of obsessed um, with it. It's got me sewing a little bit more again. So until then, please take a little time for yourself to fill that creative well. Breathe in, craft out.